Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have Karen on the podcast today. Karen is a victim of betrayal trauma, and she's also a therapist, but she is using a pseudonym today to separate out her professional work from her personal story. And we're just going to jump right into this as all of you have experienced betrayal. Karen, let's start with your personal story. Sure. Basically, I discovered that my husband had been unfaithful approximately not quite four years ago. And what happened to me was what happens to so many partners was a very slow, leaky discovery. Whereas I initially thought that there was one affair partner and just as I was ready to move on from that discovery and had actually handled that quite well. I began to discover, of course, the rest of it. There was sexual addiction involved and multiple affair partners and acting out that was going on, exchanging of photographs and so forth. That was the beginning for me of discovering what had been actually going on for probably eight years prior to my discovery of it. I think it's really interesting when women say, I dealt with it, quote unquote, quite well, right? Because you're a victim of abuse and you're recognizing it and you have the right to react to it any way that you see fit. You can react with anger or with sadness or however it is. But even now, after knowing that, women have this feeling that they have to act a certain way when it happens to them. Can you talk about that for a little bit? I think what was involved in that, at least for me, was that I didn't know the extent or the depth of what had happened. And in fact, did not have awareness of the emotional abuse and the depth of that either. I was in the dark and wasn't aware, even though I knew something was wrong, there were issues in the marriage with the emotional abuse and the cycling through of that. I didn't know the extent of it. So given that I have the tools that I have and the experience that I have, I was able to process that people make mistakes and we all are flawed and that it made sense to me that my husband at that time and stage in his life had taken a wrong turn and made a bad choice. And that now he was back on track and he was very motivated to heal the marriage. So that was the information that I first was responding to. Found it quite interesting that even though that was extremely painful, I was able to walk through that with quite a bit of dignity and grace. So I was able to move through that pretty rapidly and able to move to a place of acceptance and possibly moving forward with healing when I began to find out more information. So once I began to find out more information, I was in shock, just absolute shock. There's so many levels to this question, I think, going back to why do we want to appear like we can handle it? Why do we want to look good while we're hemorrhaging to death? And I think it's because there's some level of shame in being a victim. And I think that's societal and that's about where we blame the victim, where we have this thing that we distance the victim from ourselves. And so therefore we can look at the victim and say, well, I'm not like her or I'm not like them. And that will never happen to me. It's really, you know, difficult thing to identify yourself as a victim. Can you talk about that a little bit? So here you've been a therapist your whole life, and I was this way. You sort of fancy yourself as knowledgeable in the world of abuse. You probably think that you can recognize it. You think that you understand it. And then you start to recognize that you've been emotionally and psychologically abused for many years. Can you talk about how that felt? Well, that's really ongoing. 
And the difficulty with that is that for me, it's a slow awakening. It's a slow coming out of the shock, the initial shock. And the fight, flight, or freeze, I recognized about a year ago that I had been in freeze for many years. And freeze is paralysis. But I wasn't aware that I had been in freeze. So it's just like a, a slow thawing out of recognizing what's really been happening, what's really been going on. It's like, yes, you can be in a situation where you're being emotionally and psychologically abused and you really don't identify it. And I think part of that is because it's so insidious when it's not real over. I minimized it because there wasn't physical abuse going on. I was aware, I actually had confronted my husband about the abusiveness way back in 2004. And in fact, the issues between us, the dynamics in our marriage were all about that. And because of my awareness of abuse dynamics, I recognized around 2004, which would have been about six years into our marriage, that this cycle was going on of emotional abusiveness that would build. And then he would have an explosion verbally and he became critical and so forth. I recognized that as being cyclic and I confronted him about it. And I basically told him at that point that I recognized this, that it was a problem and that I would not engage in it. And so therefore, what I did at that time is I chose to disengage from the honeymoon period. So that actually played into his perception that he was being rejected, which was part of his rationalization and justification for when he began acting out. He was not getting his way, basically. We were in a stalemate, and the stalemate was, I'm not going to be in this cycle. So I just sort of disengaged. You were keeping yourself safe. I think it's so interesting in the process of keeping yourself safe and setting a boundary for safety that he used that against you to further blame you for continued abuse. Yeah, he rationalized that and escalated. What he did in the face of my detachment, my attempt to keep myself safe and the way that I did keep myself safe is that he continued to escalate further and further because he wasn't getting his way. Ultimately, my disengagement caused him to escalate to the point where he was caught and all of this came out. He understands now that I was not rejecting him and that this was all based on his behavior. Setting a boundary rather than rejecting him, right? For your own safety. Exactly. I was not rejecting him and I was clear that I wasn't rejecting him. However, he perceived it differently and his twisted, distorted thinking that's what he used to justify himself. And he knew that he was wrong. That's just how he rationalized it to himself. And that's what we do in addiction is we rationalize and justify our behavior, but the driving force is the addiction. And so we will twist and distort reality into whatever shape we need it to be in order to explain and justify what it is we're doing to ourselves and why we have a right to do that. Yeah, which is unfortunate because many of the societal scripts sort of follow that. Like the TED talk about the sexless marriage or other things where people aren't getting their needs met. And there's some societal scripts around not getting your needs met that people are not putting within the context of abuse. Now, I'm not anti-sex. So let's talk about the sex positive movement. What does it get wrong about pornography? Where do I start with this? 
people not getting their needs met. And I have heard these kind of comments on Facebook and social media. And it'll often be women who are having affairs with married men and saying that, well, his wife doesn't give him sex. All of that is all insane. And what's going on is that sex is not a, a need like food, first of all, okay? There's a myth that says that sex is something that we have to have and we cannot live without. And I am totally for sex, but I certainly understand at this stage of my development and evolution that it is not something that I have to have. Like, for example, food. We do have to eat or we will perish. We do not have to have sex or we will perish. But we have a myth in the society that that is the case. And that it's like a legitimate, quote unquote, need. Yes. And that it must be met. Okay. And so this feeds into the entitlement that men have. And it even goes further into, you know, some of the cultural changes that have happened where women are adopting that same posture and position in their reaching for equal rights or for equality with men that they should they should have this too. But let me go back to the 70s since you know I'm a little bit older here and say that we made the same mistake as feminists back in the 70s when we wanted to have it all. And we decided to go along with Helen Gurley Brown and Cosmopolitan and we want it all and so on and so forth. So what we thought we wanted was to be like men and we wanted to have exactly what they had. And so therefore we were going to have jobs like they had and we imitated that. We didn't understand that feminism is not about becoming like men and imitating what they do, but it is in being able to completely fulfill who we are as women, which is different than men. And so rather than trying to have what men have, we just need to to be able to go within and be able to understand as women what it is that we need to become completely fulfilled as ourselves. Because if you think about toxic masculinity, what men have is toxic. We don't want it. So when women have decided that they want to be sexually free like men to go out and get laid and get sex all the time, your premise is distorted because you're thinking that that freedom is actually freedom, when in reality, it's bondage. So the sex positive movement, I understand and I believe in the positiveness of sex. Okay, and that we want a sex positive culture and that to me what that looks like is acknowledging that we do have desires and needs and that it is okay and that we can honor those and that we can feel free in the expression of that. It does not mean that we imitate toxic masculinity. Or use something that is extremely toxic like pornography to pattern our healthy sex life after. If you're viewing pornography and thinking that's what a healthy sex life is, that's not. It's like the farthest thing from it. Right. And there's this whole kink movement too. The sex positive movement is also allowing for kink and people are expressing their kink, not understanding that they're just reinforcing these patterns. And that in fact, if you want to talk about healthy sexuality, healthy sexuality is a byproduct of intimacy and relationship. Now, if we want to separate sex out and use it as a drug and use it as something much as we use alcohol and drugs and other experiences and behaviors in a way that divorces and separates us from intimacy and relationship, the sex positive movement is used and exploited in a way that's abusive and toxic. Yeah. And we don't know what level 
the consent really is happening, right? Are they being coerced? Do they know? Just like you and I lived in a coercive relationship for years. So many people who are participating in some of these acts don't think they're coerced, but they actually might be, and they're being abused in the process. Yes, I think there is a component of that. And I believe that many people who do it and believe in it are in coercive situations it's a form of spiritual bypass. So is the sex positive. All of this can be a form of spiritual bypass or just bypass in general. There is a component of it that appeals to that spiritual pride thing so that people actually believe that it's a spiritual thing to be that way. Yeah, which I think is just abusive and ridiculous. Here at BTR, I have the luxury of saying, this is my podcast, and what I think is that it's a bunch of bullcrap. But see, then that makes us sexually uptight. So then that means I'm sex negative. See how that set up? That also is a false dichotomy, right? I don't even play games with that. I say, no, porn is wrong. It's always wrong. It's always going to be wrong. It's always abusive. I don't make apologies for that, which makes it nice here at BTR. All the women who listen to our podcast have been victimized by this type of abuse. And so any semblance of saying that it's healthy is so triggering and harmful to victims. Pornography. I don't believe that it is healthy on any level. It's exploitive. I don't understand sex workers who have a movement for sex workers' rights. I don't understand how that can be anything except part of enabling this toxic masculinity and the abuse of women and children. I don't see it as being consensual. Pornography itself, I see it as abusive. So let's talk about that for a minute. When it comes to sex addiction, how is abusiveness generally relevant and applicable in your mind? Abusiveness is one major component of not only sex addiction, but all addiction. And in sex addiction, it is especially harmful. I'm trying to still separate that out for myself, but people who use substances, they are abusing the substance rather than other people. And so they're harming themselves in that sense. But in the addiction and the addiction taking control and driving their behavior, they end up being abusive in general to the people around them because they end up lying and deceiving and manipulating. And that's abusive. With the sex addict, it goes even further. And so to me, I see in the treatment industry, it's like the elephant in the room. So they are not addressing the abuse component of sex addiction. Yes. That's what we do here at BTR almost exclusively is abuse within the context of sex addiction. Yes. It's absolutely beautiful work and I appreciate it. And thank you so much because you are on the leading vanguard. The lone voice of reason out on the internet. The industry itself doesn't want to address this and is not addressing it. No. In fact, it seems like so much sex addiction treatment is protecting the addict rather than the victim. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. Why do you think that is? I think it's because there's so much stigma around addiction, any kind of addiction, let alone sex addiction, which is incredibly stigmatized. The stigma is so great that I think that in order to deal with that, I think stopping the behavior is a priority. And I think that's where it fails, is that they don't go far enough to understand the abuse component of the behavior. And so when you stop the sexual acting out, but you do not stop the abusive thinking, the abusive behavior, when you don't address that, when you don't confront it directly, 
then you are basically enabling the addict to continue to be abusive, but you're feeling satisfied that you've done some form of harm reduction by getting them to stop the sexual acting out. And that's in general, because it's like, maybe that's the tip of the iceberg is sort of in the industry and the way that it's had to approach this. The attitude has to do with, we're going to do harm reduction and we're going to minimize the harm that this does. And so the first priority there is we need to stop the sexual acting out or the drinking or the gambling or whatever it happens to be. But we're not acknowledging the harm and the abuse that's being done to the family members. Why? Why are we sacrificing children and often, most often, women to protect the addicts? I don't know. That's why what we do all day long. I can't figure it out. Well, to save face. Okay, so the stigma is so bad that the shame of actually acknowledging the abuse, the abusive component, is so great that it goes way beyond the shame of the addiction. Just starting with the addiction, that's shame. How can you have these clients come in and say, not only are you an addict, but you're an abuser? Yeah, exactly. Like that's just too much for these poor guys, apparently. We don't want to push them over the edge or whatever. And I'm saying, uh, but what about the victim? She is being pushed over the edge. She was already pushed over the edge. To me, it's like a really subtle or not so subtle, very obvious and insidious misogynistic problem. It seems really obvious to me at this point, but it was not obvious to me before. I've been in recovery myself. I'm a recovering alcoholic. For 32 years, I've been clean and sober. I'm very, very familiar with the 12 steps. That is my way of life. I'm very familiar also with the treatment industry, and I've actually worked in it some. I had a lot of exposure, and so this is what I'm seeing given that experience and the benefit of the experience in the long view that I've had. Some of the work that's been done, for example, Patrick Karn's work was groundworking in the 80s when that started. If you look at it in the long view, it's like, well, at least we've come this far. But just the fact that he acknowledged sex addiction and brought it out of the shadow, so to speak, which is the name of his book from the 80s, that's huge. And I have great respect and reverence for him for that reason. However, at this point, more is being revealed. If we look at it in the sense of we're in a patriarchal system, that is the real true crux of all of it. And we're just at the very, very edge of addressing this at all. I mean, you look at the Me Too movement and all the exposures of priests and all of these different things that are coming to light and out of the shadows in recent years. This has been going on forever, but we are only now beginning to face it. And I think that's true about the abuse component of addiction. It's just such a horrific tragedy what happens to partners. My husband went to an intensive treatment program this last summer. And when I went for the week, given my experience and knowledge and my wisdom, which, you know, given that I've been in this coercive relationship, you'd think I would have totally lost completely any touch with. But given that, it took all that I have and all that I am and everything I've ever learned in 30 plus years of recovery and work on myself and work with others. It took all of that for me to be able to contain one week of the way that the partners were treated, including myself, for one week in this intensive treatment program. And that was at the expense of the partners on behalf of the addicts at the expense of the partners. And the focus is on the addict. 
Which is so interesting to me because abuse experts like Lundy Bancroft say that will not help the abuser at all. They'll become more abusive when the treatment is focused on them rather than their victims. Does that make sense? Yes. And I believe that. And I think that Lundy is absolutely on target. Right. Yeah. He's like our Bible. Someone said to me the other day, I just read this book called Why Does He Do That? Have you seen that? And I just laughed. I was like, that's our Bible. We use that all the time. Yes. I mean, I even hear myself like trying to be open-minded. Have you ever given yourself permission to not be not open-minded, right? Because we all want to be open-minded, but just speak your truth. And it's funny because a lot of women have said, wow, I never had permission to just outright say, I don't want this. I don't like this. This is wrong. And I personally am very clear about porn and, in fact, asked my husband early on that I am not okay with it, that I'm not comfortable with it, that I don't want it in my life or in our environment whatsoever, and asked him if he would respect that, and he said yes. Exactly. So then at that point, any form of porn in your relationship, when he has agreed to that and lied to you, is a form of sexual coercion existing in your relationship when you have specifically asked for it not to be. Because women have a right to say what type of sexual experience they would like inside their relationship. Oh, yeah. So in other words, that was a clear boundary. Exactly. And if it's a form of sexual coercion when he did not adhere to that boundary, you've told him outright, this is the type of relationship I would like. The way that it's a form of sexual coercion is through omission. He's not giving you the information that you need to give your consent. Yes. By going ahead and engaging in that without telling me he's altering my reality, he's actually robbing me of agency. Yes, exactly. And he's not getting your consent. It's a consent issue and people don't understand that either. Yeah. It's not about, hey, I just like porn and I'm going to use this for me over here. It's like women have exactly the right to say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want that in our relationship and I don't want you to do that. That doesn't mean that they're not open-minded. And that's part of what we do here is is tell women you have a voice and you have a right to say what is and is not acceptable to you within your sexual relationship in the realm of your sexuality, what you feel comfortable with. And if you don't feel comfortable having sex with a man who uses pornography, then if you tell him that and he doesn't respect that, that is a form of sexual coercion through omission through him not giving you all the information you need to give consent. Yeah. And it's deception. And Yeah, it's really bad. I don't think people realize the extent of damage that it does, but you do and I do. But yeah, for our listeners, all of our listeners have experienced this. And so it's just heartbreaking to think that they have done their best to try and be out front and open about what they think is healthy inside their relationship and their requests have not been respected. Yeah, and I think it is really important, as you've said, that women understand that they have a voice and that we have our own preferences and our own boundaries and that we're perfectly allowed to have those. There's nothing at all that we should do outside of of what is comfortable for us and what we ourselves desire and want to be a part of. I'm an older person, so I went through the free love, sex, rock and roll, and drugs and all of that stuff. We've all been absolutely delusional or blinded to all of this. I don't know about you, but for me, this has been incredible. I mean, I had my boundaries before any of this happened. My boundaries were monogamy, no pornography, 
that we would both be faithful. They were very, very clear. And I did not equivocate about those whatsoever. And my husband agreed to all of them. And that was my understanding of our relationship. And that was my understanding of what was happening until I found out one day, you know, almost four years ago, that, that none of those boundaries or parameters were being honored and that he had not kept his word and that all of that was being violated. Just women in general in this society have been abused. Like, it's just part of life. Yeah. There's these other elements of it, like, well, if this happens to you, just move on, find another man, you know, who will treat you right, or, you know, something like that, where relationships don't work out sometimes. And it's like, not realizing this has been abuse, and this person has been abused for years. You know, you would never say that to a rape victim. You would never say, Oh, you know, some people just get raped and it just doesn't work out. And, you know, you just got to move on. That would never happen with a rape victim. But they say it to betrayal trauma victims who, in a sense, some of them actually have been raped by their husbands, but also just haven't been able to give their consent. They've been in an abusive relationship and they're not getting the same type of care and treatment that other victims would get. And I think all of it comes down to toxic masculinity and a patriarchal system in which men are privileged and they are entitled and taught to feel that they are entitled. And everything in our culture has encouraged that and has blamed the victim on every level and every corner of society. So this is not a matter of an individual man. It's not a matter of your husband or mine. This is a matter of an entire systemic issue that is at the very heart and at the very core of all of this. And if you want to look at a betrayal trauma victim and say, well, move on and find another relationship or whatever, then you are absolutely not at all acknowledging or seeing that what is beneath this has to do with our entire society and every single one of us. Yes, absolutely. And that's a hard pill for people to swallow sometimes. As I talk with people and they think I'm so extreme, number one, we don't accept any porn at all. Number two, we don't accept anything as healthy that a woman doesn't feel comfortable with, whatever that may be. If she doesn't feel comfortable, it doesn't mean she's prude. It means she has her own feelings of what she wants to do and not do. And in order to do that with her, you need to have her consent without coercing her, without telling her, hey, you're a prude if you don't do this or that. And be respectful of who she is and what she is. And I definitely a systemic problem. It is not just one man. And the reason we know that is so many women are going through this right now. Yes. And one of the things we're up against that you've just touched on is other women. For example, I have cut through some of the bull with some women that I know. And I've had one of them come back to me a year later and say, you really pissed me off, but I knew in my heart that you were right. And what I had really tried to get through was that she actually was being coerced. The problem is, is that many women, they believe that what they're doing makes sense. They believe that they are somehow more liberated than other women or that they are special because we have been taught that we can be the special one and we can be the one that understands the men. We're not like the poor victim woman. Yeah, I was like that when I was single. I was like, oh, you know, sex is beautiful and wonderful. And I still think the sex can be good. I don't think sex is bad. But if you have sex, your relationship can be great. And you know, that sort of thing. And I was giving my husband as much sex as he ever wanted or asked for. And he still cheated on me. 
Right. It has nothing to do with the volume or amount of sex. No. No. Or even the type of sex. I mean, so many women have engaged in that thinking, well, this is what I can do to gain his trust or his love or something, and then only find out later that it didn't do any of those things. The thing that does happen with addiction, and for so many women, is that they begin offering more sex or being more sexually available or dressing a certain way. They actually will have their husband telling them that they would do this, then he would be satisfied. This is all completely, absolutely wrong. It has nothing to do with how you look or anything whatsoever to do with the partner. It has only to do with the betrayer who is and preying upon and doing everything under his power in order to satisfy his addiction, which has nothing to do with use. Right. And I think for women who participate in that, I think they just want to be loved just like everybody else. Well, yeah. And you actually think you're groomed as a child to be pleasing as a female. And you are taught as a woman in this society that these are the things that women should be. You also learn that based in the patriarchy, in order to survive in this patriarchal system, women are basically asked to be objects. So the better an object we can be, the better we perform as an object, the more we secure. And we're all about security because that is at the heart of who we are as women. We provide what security, we build nests, and we want to make a good, comfortable, safe place to be. And so in exchange for that security, we are asked to be objects. We are objectified, and we are nothing more than that. And so the better an object we can be, the better we will be taken care of. But you have to realize as a woman from the get-go, you have to come to the point at some point where you understand that you are not an object. First, you have to understand that you are an object. (laughs) And then you have to get to the point of understanding that you never were and that that is not who you truly are, that you have been used and exploited as an object in an entire system from the very Mm get-go. For those of us like me who have always rejected the objectification part of it, my well-meaning awesome parents who wanted me to look very cute and wear lipstick and, oh, if you just comb your hair. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that, you know, (laughs) from a very young age. That's been hard because I rejected that. I also got the consequences of rejecting that, which were I wasn't as liked by boys or I was too outspoken or too opinionated or too this or too that, right? So I ended up getting all those other labels. Either way, like I rejected that as well. But at the same time that I rejected it, I really didn't know how to be true to myself and be authentic and not be rejected. I didn't even know that existed. Me either. I still have a hard time with that, actually. I still don't know what it is. Because you just instinctively knew that that wasn't true. You instinctively knew that lipstick and all those things, that doesn't really fit. But when you go out in the world and you're among people, you... I put it on. Yeah, that's what's reflected to you is this is the game, girl. Right. So I put it on because it's appropriate and I'm not stupid. So I wear it. Well, Karen, we've kind of been all over the place and I so appreciate you coming on today's episode. I would love to know your thoughts about consent, about misogynistic views, about patriarchy, about anything like that. If you would please go to btr.org and comment on this post consider joining Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group, which has multiple sessions per day in multiple time zones. Anyone who joins Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group can also get 10% off of individual sessions. All of our 
coaches are trained and certified and they are here to help you sort through all of this. Because we have so many societal scripts and cultural scripts, it's really difficult to separate this out. So thank you for listening and thank you for sharing. If this podcast is helpful to you, please share it with your friends. Please post these episodes on Facebook and consider making a monthly donation. Scroll to the bottom of btr.org, click on make a donation and set your recurring monthly donation today. And until next week, stay safe out there.